I I think that if you're if you're a fairly new rider or you're a fairly time crunched rider, you don't necessarily have to be a new rider, but let's just say you're a time crunched rider. So getting a ride in every single day is a challenge for you. That that actually should be probably the first thing that you focus on. What's up, y'all, and welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and today we're bringing you part two of base training. You'll hear from Andrew, Dylan, Drew, and myself as we discuss some of the more nuanced details of base training while providing you a little bit of insight into how we implement base training into our endurance programs. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a training-related topic in a future episode, drop an email to info at ignitioncoachco.com with the title, The Matchbox Podcast. Or you can send us a DM on Instagram at the Ignition Coach Co. Uh, Instagram page. All right, let's get into it. Um, cool. So we're going to kick off this show with a new segment that we are going to call What You're Training For. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, each of our uh, training over the last week or so, maybe some events we have coming up and just how we're preparing for those events. Uh, it'll be a short segment, uh, but we'll each get into it. So, uh, Drew, we're going to start with you, man. Yeah. What you training I'm for? Hoping. I'm training for an ultra marathon. <laughs> because, Drew is you know, so why, excited about this. Because why not? I was in the car today and today, tomorrow I leave to go to Oklahoma for it's so what I'm officially doing is the double at the Mid-South in Stillwater, Oklahoma. This Friday, March 11th is a 50k run. So 32 miles for all of you all who are on American units. Um, (laughs) And then the very next day you do 100 miles gravel. Uh, I've done the gravel race before. I got third once. Um, But that probably would never happen again because of you know, all these, um, like world tour guys that are now racing gravel. So I think I have a better shot at doing well in the double by doing both the run and the ride than just doing the ride. So I've been running and, um, feeling ready, man. Yeah. Today I was in the car and was just like pumped, like a different kind of pumped from a normal bike race. Cause in a bike race, there's like pumped, but then there's nervous. And then I'm thinking about like, what other people are going to do, who's going to attack, who's going to be strong, you know, when am I going to drop Dylan? Like all these things are going through my head. Uh, But when I'm, but for a run, I'm like, I don't even know. Like, I'm just, it's so new. I'm like, I'm just pumped. I can't wait. Is that, is that why you put your costume on already? Costume? (laughs) Well, you got the Forrest Gump beard going. Yes. In the cross country hoodie. Oh yeah, that that is why actually why I wore this. Yeah, I run with the Fairdale High School cross country team, mm. so I supported them about this hoodie. But Drew, did you run in high school? Mm-mm. No. Wow. Never, never ran. Maybe if you ran in high school, you wouldn't even be into biking. You'd just be a runner. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. The problem is, is that although I hear it's harder to make it as a runner than it is a cyclist. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how you define made it, but. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Have we made it? (laughs) I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's, you know, so running is less equipment heavy. I wonder if there's less industry sponsors in running. Because it's basically like shoes and clothes and that's it. That part of running I love. I hate that cycling has so much stuff. Some people like love that. I hate that. I don't want, especially cyclocross. Like I love a new bike, but I don't love two new bikes. That's just too much. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think I'm just a material gal. <laughs> no, I'm all shopping. about just shoes, shorts, legs go. That's it. Mm. You don't even need a shirt half the time. What kind of running shoes do you have? <laughs> new balance. I don't know. Like, what sounds they slow. Are. They're the ones. I just went to a local running store, and they're the ones that they uh, told me to get. Yeah. All right. Yep, I'm pumped. Nice. 
Well, uh, I'll also be at All Mid right. South, but I'm not. I'm not running the day before. I'll just be doing the bike race. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> be my uh, my first time doing Mid South, so it'll be interesting. Looks like it's going to snow the day before, so and, and it's going to be a cold one as well. Um, I would say I'm still like mid base season though, and then um, that's kind of what the focus of my training has been lately. So Dylan, are you doing anything to last minute prep for mid south, or are you just staying the course and other than the fact training race? that yeah, other than the fact that this week is a rest week, uh, and it just it, I didn't even necessarily plan to have a rest week leading into mid south. It just happened to work out that way which works out really well because mid-south is probably the the biggest deal race that's in my base season so it worked out well um other than the fact that this is a rest week not necessarily cool uh andrew what are you training for man well so i'm in a bit of a predicament at the moment i'm actually I'll describe it as I'm I'm training to train because um, I actually currently have a broken clavicle, as you three know, and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's riding the trainer is about the most I can do right now, and I I actually just had surgery on this past Thursday, so even that is sort of um, a bit tenuous. But on the horizon. Um, you know, about eight weeks from now, I have Tour of the Gila, so that'll be my first race back. And if any of you are familiar with that race, it's a super hard stage race in the desert, the high desert of New Mexico. So um, that'll that'll be a that'll be a toughie. So should keep me motivated uh, as I slog away inside over the next six weeks. You'll just be fresh, <laughs> physically fresh, mentally cracked. That's what I tell everybody that's injured. It's just you're just gonna be fresh when everybody else is is. I, I actually, I honestly think that there is something to that. Um, there have been there have been some athletes who've had some like career defining races after they've been injured, and uh, I I do think that it may partially be because some of these athletes just live in a constant state of overtraining, and them getting injured mm-hmm. was a way to get out of that overtraining state. Um, well, in, in personally, I'm a two discipline athlete, right? I race a full road season, a full cross season. So I, I do think the silver lining here is that for the first time in a long time, I get a little bit more of a break between uh, cross and road. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really hoping and, um, you know, feeling optimistic that uh, the later half of my road season and my cross season could be, Best ever. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have to come back and do a coming back from injury episode. I've actually gotten that <laughs> request a lot uh, for the YouTube channel. So Yeah, hey, and I'm, I'm rolling up all the tips. So, <laughs> Hey, Andrew, can you uh, let everyone know when you got injured and what happened? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, sort of an interesting situation. Um, I, was, I was actually just on a... Uh, a training ride and I was with a buddy and I was actually going for a uh, town line sprint, um, which we hadn't agreed to do. And uh, one of my cleats was maybe a little bit worn out and I pulled out of the pedal and I was really, you know, pulling on the bars hard. And so I think the foot coming out and then maybe pulling up with that ipsilateral hand caused the bike to kind of just tip over enough that I sort of, jackknifed myself and just went flying off the bike landed on the pavement knew immediately the collarbone was broken told my buddy do not call an ambulance (laughs) we're gonna wave somebody down (laughs) um and uh you know in the days after that you know it it didn't feel too bad and i felt really sort of optimistic about the prognosis and went and saw an orthopedic a couple days later he said you should definitely do surgery Given how I felt, I, I wanted a second opinion, so I went and saw a different orthopedic. And funny enough, they said, you should definitely not do surgery. You should do the conservative approach, which is just letting it heal on its own. 
And so I was faced with two completely opposite perspectives from, you know, well-respected orthopedic people, right? Um, so I kind of hemmed and hawed and, um, you know, really tried to evaluate both options as best as I could. And ultimately, two weeks, about two weeks after the initial injury, I decided that surgery was going to be my best bet. Um, that's because of this particular fracture pattern. Um, clavicle can break in all sorts of different places. It's a long bone um, by definition. And uh, with my particular fracture pattern, which was it fracturing in the lateral third and sort of the connection of ligaments um, to each side of the fracture, um, the, the chance, what I found out was the chance that there'd be uh, non-union between the two bones was, was pretty significant. Um, and, and what doctors were essentially telling me was that, yeah, it might feel fine now, but it might just only feel fine for forever, basically until you get surgery. And you won't know if it's going to heal until you're, you know, six or eight weeks in. And so, um, basically I went with the sure thing, um, you know, and that was both for this road season and, you know, for future me, you know, who doesn't want to, you know, have surgery down the road in the middle of the summer. So, um, well, look at the bright side. Now you get to get frisked every time you go through uh, security <laughs> in airports because you have a big metal bar on your shoulder. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious about that. I, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't so work like that. I'm told it's made of titanium. Oh. I don't, I don't know yeah. this with any real authority. Could be, could be anything that they put inside of me, but you didn't get them uh, to upgrade to carbon. um i am curious drew i've got one in my shoulder and i've had it there for 10 years um it no no patents i can confirm it does not uh send off the alarm at the metal detector it's made i mean titanium is still a metal but it's it's um i don't know they they make it it's some composite alloy that they yeah it somehow doesn't get picked up on scanners can you run with a broken clavicle, Andrew? Yeah, that's a really good question. So one of the first things I really was racking my brain to figure out was what forms of cross-training I could do mm-hmm. if I couldn't yeah. ride my bike outside, right? So I right. was in my base season, um, which, as we discussed in the previous episode, is you know one of the higher volume uh, phases of your, your training year. And so you know the thought of replacing... 20 hours of riding with 20 hours of riding on the trainer was like really daunting to me. Um, and what I found out is no, you cannot really run with a broken clavicle. Um, and so I did, I did a good bit of hiking in those two weeks leading Mm -hmm. up to the surgery. And even that was kind of rough, just like the, the jostling motion was, was sort of uncomfortable. Um, ultimately what I found was that the trainer was my best bet. There was real, Really no good replacement for that, um, except for maybe roller skates, which I didn't mm. ultimately get, but I felt really optimistic about. <laughs> so the risk of crashing on roller skates are so high that I would be so nervous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I grew up around Chicago and I grew up ice skating, and maybe it's hubris, but I felt pretty confident that I'd be okay. And we, we have a, we have um, a really mellow velodrome here in, in Asheville. So the plan was to, mm. to go and rip laps there. And, and I would do that sort of in addition to the indoor trainer, just to have, you know, something different that I could do outside. Honestly, I would just go to the melodrome on your bike and ride it with one hand. You know, I'm going to tell everybody the truth and I don't know if this is medically advised, but leading up to the surgery, I did do that. Um, and I, I did that for about a half an hour. And then I pretty immediately got off of the melodrome and just rode on the path because <laughs> it was too boring. Um, and then, you know, the following day, I think I ended up going and riding on the parkway a bit. Um, and, and, you Which know, I felt good about it? that. It's my left. So non-dominant arm. Um, I, but I it, did... It doesn't, I did it one time. Uh, I, I was just gonna say I did one time break a rib, and I could I could 
couldn't really put any pressure on my right arm because it hurt so much. And I, I didn't miss a beat with my training. I just kept riding, but I like, I would ride like six hours with basically all my weight on one, one hand and I couldn't get out of the saddle either. That's, that's tough. So, you know, I, I read a lot about, um, what different people have done to, you know, stay comfortable while riding the trainer when they can't put a lot of weight on one hand. And so initially, you know, I was on the trainer with like a big physio ball stuck to my handlebars so I could sort of beat mm. myself on that thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that was okay. Uh, it it probably wasn't appropriate to do anything but zone one um, just because there's a, a beach ball against your chest. Um, and ultimately what I figured out, and I was pretty proud of myself for kind of putting this together, was um, I rigged a like a heavy-duty, like a 40 or 50-pound a uh, resistance band to the wall behind the trainer. Um, and then I wore, I wore that resistance band around my chest. So it would sort of like suspend my torso. Um, and then I could have both hands on the bars. I wasn't developing like any weird asymmetries, you know, as Dylan probably did. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it felt good. And there wasn't, wasn't a lot of pressure on my, my shoulder. So, um, yeah. I, I felt good about that. I mean, when you start to get sweaty, the thing would start to kind of slide on you a little bit, but <laughs> it did. That's like so true. If there's a will, there's a way. When I broke my hand, I ended up setting up my feedback uh, bike stand, and you, those things are so adjustable that I had it set to where I could put my elbow right on the right on the top of it and put my weight because I couldn't hold the handlebars with the cast. So I'd have my left hand holding the bars. And my right arm resting on that on that feedback trainer or not trainer the um just the bike rack bike stand, and I could still bust out intervals like with my like I was just crank like cranking on it like this. It was pretty funny, but I was able to come back and have a pretty good nationals after that at the end of the season. So like to what Dylan was saying, I think I went into Nats like having only raced less than ten times and got. It was my best nationals I've ever had. So, yeah. Who was that? Um, who was the guy who won Perry Bay uh, in? I think it was like 2016 after he had been on Zwift All Classic season. You guys know who I'm talking about? I know who you're talking about, but I don't know the name. There's a lot of guys. So Greg Van Avermaet had a great return. Pidcock obviously won Olympic gold after a broken. No, it was like the. It was like the. It was like the only big race he'd won in his whole career. Huh. And I can't remember his name right now. He rode for... Um, that wasn't Matthew Heyman? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There, there's pictures of him, like he's in a cast, and he set it on a ladder or something. He's just watching Zwift. So, so, it, so, I, so one, one thing on that, Matt Heyman's power numbers from that race... Mm-hmm. are supposedly like off the charts abnormal like the dude's performance was incredible so yeah i mean people were talking about that like maybe there's something to it maybe every world tour rider needs to take that's that's what i was going to say off. i was going to say so every other rider in that race so perry Roubaix is the last race in the classic season right every other rider had done a full classic season they're probably pretty pretty cooked at that point and he's fresh as a daisy ready to go you know what i mean well yeah to that point you know i would never tell i think any of my athletes to do as much racing as i do or you know as as like a typical world tour rider does and i think maybe teams don't realize it but the racing year-round constantly has to be counterproductive Mm -hmm. um not only because of the fatigue associated with racing so hard, but also because, you know, when are you going to train, right? You know, at a certain point, you're just racing and recovering. And, of course, racing can be good training, but it's unpredictable. Um, and, and, you know, a given energy system doesn't maybe get as much attention as it needs for peak performance. Yeah. Sweet. You guys uh, 
Ready to jump into some more talk about base training? Let's do it. All right. So last week we we came together and we were kind of doing part one of uh, base training. We were talking about significance of base training. Uh, you know, when does base training typically take place? We were talking a little bit about uh, incorporating intensity into base training. But this week we're going to get a little bit more into nitty gritty of like what does a typical base season look like? How long should a base season last? And when you should start transitioning out of base season to start preparing for your race season. So let's uh, let's start at the top there. What what do you guys typically uh, in- incorporate into a normal base season um, for any of your athletes that you coach? Yeah. Um, so what I'll typically do is is the base season will run three months, and uh, the volume is increasing over that three month period, and and actually also the intensity is increasing over that three month period. Um, usually in the first month. I'll have people do like two intensity days for the whole month and that's it. Uh, in the second month we bump it up to one intensity day per week. And then by the third month we might get to the point where we're doing two intensity days per week. And those intensity days, they're not super intense. Usually it's, it's kind of tempo sessions. And then, you know, maybe in the second month we get into more, uh, threshold sessions um, and probably in the third third month, we're we're sort of mixing the two a little bit, um, and then at you know with each month, we're trying to we're trying to build the volume as well. So, Dylan, yeah. for those who might not be familiar, uh, can you break down like the difference between uh, tempo riding and threshold? Like what uh, perceived exertion someone should feel if they're not riding with power? Yeah. Um, and maybe why do you start with tempo versus just jumping straight into higher intensity? Yeah, well, I think the main reason that I, I do that is kind of for progressive overload and sort of, um, you know, progressive overload, you're, you know, you need to, uh, you need to somehow stress your body more than it's already been stressed in order to continue making adaptations. And you can do that by increasing volume or increasing intensity or increasing both. Um, so that, that's kind of the way that I'm, I'm sort of allowing progressive overload to happen during the base season. Um, as far as, as what tempo perceived exertion, I mean, it's kind of the point at which the, you can't, uh, you can't really hold a conversation anymore. In fact, talking in general starts to become hard. Um, is how I would say for someone who doesn't have a power meter, what that feels like. Yeah. If you want to get technical, it's uh, 76 to 91% of your threshold. <laughs> yeah, so well, Adam, just, Adam's question was uh, for people who don't have a power meter. But yes, oh, the, the, darn. For I people didn't hear who, that part. <laughs> for people who do have a power meter, there you go. That's, that, that's the exact numbers right there. So I, I just wanted to add two things. And, and the first thing I'll, I'll sort of address is um, why why we might want to do tempo before we do threshold. Um, and I think there's something to be said for working through our energy system sequentially. Um, and there's this idea of like building out before we build up. And so, you know, in the process of increasing a rider's threshold, um, there's an idea that I would sort of credit to Tim Cusick at WKO5. Um, and I, I hope I don't butcher his explanation here, uh, where you need to extend out a rider's TTE at threshold, which is their time to exhaustion. So um, without getting too deep into that, um, you know, there's, there's maybe a misconception that your threshold is the power that you can hold for an hour. But, you know, when you're untrained, you might actually only be able to hold, you know, your anaerobic threshold for 35 minutes. And so there's an idea that we need to get that extended out to an hour or, you know, 45 minutes before we can start to layer on more intensity to actually increase the, the power that that happens at. 
Um, and the other thing I wanted to say is to Drew's uh, point about the percentages for zone three and zone four, um, you know, what we're kind of looking at there physiologically is uh, two breakpoints, LT1 and LT2, which we talked about a little bit on the last episode. And I think something that's important to understand is that the, the zone systems that exist now do describe most riders' physiological breakpoints. However, those two zones can move, not zones, but uh, thresholds can move independently of one another. So in other words, um, if you had a really effective base one, should be the first month of your base training, and you were actually able to effectively increase the power at which your aerobic threshold or LT1 occurs, that distance between LT1 and LT2 would get smaller. And so, to get really technical... <laughs> but 76% would be over that regardless anyways, right? Yeah, yeah, it probably would. But maybe yeah. not. I mean, I, I think, I think LT1 it's, usually occurs some, somewhere in zone two, like in your endurance zone. Yeah, I, I think typically top, top of zone two, but point is, is that I, I think it's just a cool thing to recognize that we can move these things independently. And depending on what sort of racing you're doing, you might even want to do that. You might want to focus on one more than the other. Um, I think while we're talking about LT1 and LT2, this, these these are thresholds that we typically talk about when we're talking about polarized training and what I was just describing and kind of what we're describing is not necessarily polarized training. And I think, uh, what I'm, what I'm personally describing more is pyramidal training and pyramidal training is where most of your training is still done, uh, below that first threshold. Uh, the difference between pyramidal and polarized is that is what you're doing with that remaining, 20 to 25 percent and with pyramidal you're spending some time between the two thresholds and then an even smaller amount of time above lt2 Uh, i would say it now it depends on what kind of rider or what kind of racing you're doing which approach you want to take but also i would say it depends on the time of year and if there is a time of year where it may be more advantageous to do a pyramidal approach over a polarized approach, it would probably be during the base season. So usually how I lay out um, an athlete's base season is same thing, three months, uh, kind of breaking into base one, base two, base three. Base one, I'll usually just give them straight tempo. Um, Base two, I'll start to throw in some VO2, but very short, like, one minute or less usually. Um, but I'll mix it in to where they're probably still doing of time and zone during a workout. They're still doing the bulk of their time and zone and tempo, uh, just mixing in some VO two to kind of throw in some anaerobic stuff in there to make it a little bit harder. And then that way, when they're another, another good thing about those types of workouts is then they learn how to recover at tempo after they do an anaerobic effort. So if they do a one minute VO two, then they have to go right back to a tempo. Um, they just learn how to recover at a higher intensity. And then going into base three, I would just do uh, a threshold block where we're just increasing time um, in threshold or right below threshold. So, and that's pretty general across the board, like mm, kind of like mm, not, it doesn't have to, like any athlete could, I could probably use those three months with any athlete, regardless of what their goal race is. And then after those three months is when I would really start to get more specific. Okay, like, is this athlete training for an endurance mountain bike race or are they training for crits? And at that point, that's when I would start to make the training a little bit more specific to their race goals. So all three of you guys were talking about uh, kind of breaking down base season into three months, maybe across separate uh, you know, blocks. What will you guys do if an athlete has more than three months of base training, you know, or or time available that they could allocate to base training? Would you guys start stepping out of base mode into some higher intensity work and then go back into base training? Or would you just extend that base training season? 
think it really depends on how much time we're talking about. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of people over the pandemic who weren't racing for a whole year. So I did get the question, like, what do I do with this year? I don't, I don't have a race for so long. Uh, what should I do? And in that case, I was advocating for, okay, you should probably go through a full periodization cycle, even though you don't have a race coming up. Um, just because, you know, if you're able to reach a certain level this year, it'll be easier to get back to that level next year, as opposed to if you, you know, just kind of, I don't know, take the year off or just, um, you know, I don't know, do base training all year. Um, but if, if we're talking about like, maybe we got an extra two months or something, I usually find that that's the perfect amount of time to maybe get in focused gym work before we get, get into base training. Yeah, no. And I, I totally agree with what, what Dylan said there. Um, and just to add a couple of points, um, I think one of the important things to think about with, with the lifting stuff is, you know, and it, it does depend on whether hypertrophy is a goal or not, but, um, you know, even if you aren't looking to build muscle, there's a practical interference effect between resistance training and riding. And so I think for most athletes, anytime you can do one in the absence of the other, you're going to really progress a lot more. Um, what is interference effect? Can you so, explain that? Um, there, there's two interference effects that people talk about when they talk about concurrent training, which is Anytime you're training both resistance training and endurance training, um, there's a molecular interference effect, and there's a practical interference effect. The practical interference. Oh, we effect, want the. We definitely want the practical one. The practical well, we want a little bit of molecular. <laughs> let's, let's let's get into. We can do a little bit molecular kidding. too. So I'm the just practical kidding. It was one. A joke. <laughs> the practical one is that you know if you lift in the morning and you have to do a hard ride in the afternoon, you're probably just going to be too tired because nobody can eat enough or sleep enough to, to really do both to their full potential. Right. Mm. And we're not strength athletes. So, you know, maybe we don't need to do strength training to its full potential, but it's, it's something to consider. And I think it depends on the particular athlete, what their experience in the gym is. If they've had less experience in the gym, they're going to need more time to adapt. Um, but then the molecular interference effect is that, Resistance training and endurance training have two different adaptive pathways. So the, the signal from that stimulus that causes us to adapt in beneficial ways is different between the two. And the two signals um, can have an interfering effect with one another. In other words, um, PCG1-alpha, which is like the master regulator of endurance adaptation, can downregulate that. <laughs> People want to know, man. The PCG plus six. <laughs> uh, will, I lost you. At, I lost you. Lost me at molecular, man. <laughs> well, downregulate. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, mTOR, which is the mammalian target of rapamycin. It's it's like the uh, master switch for protein synthesis. And so, I'm not gonna lie. Mtor sounds like the guy that the Power Rangers fights against. Like when they all like megamorph to to each other and they go and they're like, "Let's go fight Mtor." That <laughs> it's like the bad guy that the Power Rangers. That's literally the image I just had in my head. That, that's why you're an endurance athlete, Drew. Like yeah. fun, fundamentally, you're like battling battling the big evil swole guy. Yes. <laughs> that lives that lives deep inside of you. So anyway, yeah, it's, that's, that's all to say that if you do have some extra time um, and you can, you know, have a big resistance training phase where you don't also have to be riding a lot, I think that can be super beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they so have the way, the, 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 I mean, the, the way that I kind of approach that is, I usually like to think of the base season as like there's like a foundation period 
and then we get into base training. And the foundation period is usually when I'm focusing an athlete's training on strength training. So volume on the bike is usually pretty low, um, not doing any intensity at all on the bike. So it's you know pretty much just zone two, easy riding. And then we'll put an emphasis on the strength training, but I'll also use that time to start building good habits. So, you know, getting in a solid routine, um, you know, dialing in your nutrition, dialing in your sleep, just kind of preparing yourself for when the harder training is to come. Washing um, your hands after the bathroom. That's a really good <clears throat> habit to instill. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you come from in Kentucky and you touch <laughs> all kinds of weird stuff, then yeah. <laughs> probably. I should probably uh, wash my hands before I go to the bathroom. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, just as a, as a period where, like Andrew was saying, we're not strength athletes, we're still endurance athletes. So like, we want to make strength gains in the gym, but if we don't reach our peak in the gym, that's totally fine. Like there's still performance to be had off, you know, outside of the gym. So while the, you know, while the training intensity is low on the bike, putting emphasis on the, on the gym just gives an athlete a little bit more freedom to just like push themselves a little bit harder, kind of dial in that routine before they start getting into harder training on the bike. And then hopefully too, kind of like Andrew was saying, you know, with the, um, you know, the interference theory, once they've built some of those strength gains in the gym, then you start building adaptations on the bike and you're not really that concerned with as much strength gains at that point. You're really kind of just focused on building more endurance and building, um, you know, gains on the bike. So usually the, you know, the, the gym will, gym work will eventually kind of taper off to where we're just kind of getting into maintenance mode in the gym. Um, but that's kind of like how I like to think about it is like foundation period and then kind of base training. So that usually makes my base period turn into like four months, um, where I'll follow like a similar structure, kind of like, uh, what Dylan was saying, where it's like no intensity for the first month and maybe throwing in one tempo or, you know, sub threshold effort a week for like the second, uh, you know, base phase two. And then we'll kind of start doing some regular intensity, uh, once we get closer to finishing out the base season. Yeah, I, I love that because uh, if you, our listeners, haven't done a big base season before and you've never done, let's say, a, you know, a 20 or a 24 or a 30-hour week, um, the thing that you have to remember is most of us aren't professional athletes, right? And to get in that sort of volume, there's not a lot of margin for error in the rest of your day. And so it's super easy for things to fall by the wayside. Um, and I think just a quick but maybe obvious tip for all of our listeners out there is that if you are endeavoring into, you know, one of your biggest weeks yet, if you start to slouch on nutrition or sleep, that's really when you start digging yourself in a hole and everything unravels because riding more than you've ever ridden before is also going to require more food and sleep than you're probably accustomed to. So yeah, you know, dial on those habits and then scale them up. So I was going to um, pose the question of as you become a more and more experienced rider and lifter from year to year, could you potentially, or, or could we as coaches, not could we, would we recommend somebody to, do more strength training um, or is it always just like a short block at the beginning of base? Like at some point could an athlete extend their strength training throughout, you know, maybe their entire base phase or something um, to get even more gains in the gym. Is that worth it? Should they, I don't know. Let's, I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I usually have my athletes lift throughout the whole base season. It's just depend. It just depends on how, how long that stays the focus of their training. And usually by the time we get to base training, it's not the focus of their training. Their focus of their training is getting in higher and higher training volume. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, personally, I think that by the time that you get to base training, what you're doing on the bike needs to be the focus. And because you're increasing your training load on the bike, something needs to fall by the wayside. And it, you know, that's kind of ends up being strength training. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing either. 
Yeah, I think I think it also depends on if it's an either or scenario, right? So if you're giving up an additional two or three hours that you could have on the bike for the gym, you know, for some people, maybe not, maybe that's the wrong decision. But, you know, if you already spend your entire day riding, you know, and then it's uh, going to the gym is something that you can do at home or at night, or, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily interfere with you riding as much as you possibly can. And you're also able to sleep and eat enough to keep up with it. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think the key there is going to be execution. And I don't want to give away all of our secrets here, but um, I think the day of the week that you put the lifting on can have a tremendous difference on how that manifests itself through your training. So, you know, you can do it before your ride. You can do it after your ride. You can do it before your rest day. You can do it on your rest day. You can do it the first day of the microcycle. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat there. And I think it, it really, uh, you know, the execution would have to be perfect. Lots of ways to skin the cat. I'm going to write that one down in my table idioms book. (laughs) You know, going back, going back to, uh, the interference effect. Um, I did a little bit of research on it for my last strength training video. I think, Good news for endurance athletes is that at least from the literature I I read, and Andrew, you can correct me if you've read something different, is that the interference effect is more of a big deal if you're trying to gain strength, not endurance. Um, Like there's more of an interference with strength component. Um, And uh, at least what I read, and and I think that we actually had a conversation and a disagreement about this. I'd like to hear what you think (laughs) is that what I read was that endurance training before your strength training session, um, it led to less strength gain. Yeah. So, so what I've heard, um, and I think Ron said even might have a paper on it. Um, I'll, I'll have to find the citation I can share with our listeners later if they want to read it themselves. But um, the title of the paper was something like, you know, using the molecular underpinnings of the interference effect to optimize concurrent training, right? And, and what they concluded was that if you want to maximize both, the way that you do it is that you ride first um, and then you wait basically as long as you can yeah. Before doing the lift in, you know, presumably the evening. Um, and then you, you know, you sleep and you wake up and you ride again. And the reason for this was that first, what you said, Dylan, um, you know, you want to, you want to prioritize whatever your dominant sport is first, because you're going to be fresher, but also, um, the duration for which the signals last differs. And so for, PCG1 alpha slash AMPK, that signal um, is most present for, I think it's like three to six hours, right? And then it's, and then it subsides and it's gone. Whereas the impulse for mTOR lasts something on the order of 18 hours. And so by spacing them out in that particular order, um, you, you can allow for uh, both, both adaptive signals to last their full duration. Um, so, not, so what you're saying is, is you would recommend riding your bike before going to the gym. Yeah. Okay, good. We're in agreement. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Me too. Just so that we're all on. The, now I will say tower. that I will say that in before the base training period, um, during the off season period, I will actually have people go to the gym first. Uh, just because that's, that's a, that's a period of the year where the gym training is actually the focus of the training. Sure. We're, we're riding our bikes during this period, but I would say the main focus of the training during that period is actually gaining strength. Yeah. And I think you and I share a similar approach there. I I just, rather than calling it off season, I usually like to think of off season as like not really structured training just because for Mm -hmm. some people it's easier to emotionally comprehend that and they can kind of, um, you know, differentiate between when they're in the season and there's actual uh, work to be done and versus off season when they can kind of just kick back and relax. But I think, I think we share the same approach there. 
Um, so I've got a question for you guys. That's kind of a transition here. So we were, you know, we were talking a little bit about this interference effect here. Um, one of the questions I wanted to bring up was, you know, is it during the base season, is it better to increase your training volume by doing one really long ride each week? Um, say someone is a weekend warrior and they can only get in 30 to 45 minutes throughout the week, uh, but they've got eight hours to train on Saturday. Um, do you guys typically recommend that approach where someone is increasing their volume by introducing one very long ride each week? Or if they have the ability to, do you try and scatter that out and break, you know, break that volume down uh, over the course of a week? Yeah, so I'll, I'll hop in and sort of address that one. And if I'm understanding the question correctly, you know, let me reframe it by saying, like, let's say an athlete has eight hours to train total over the whole course of the weekend, right? So they can do, you know, and this is never really the, the debate. Like they could do a six-hour ride and a two-hour ride or two four-hour rides or an eight-hour ride and no ride on Sunday, right? Um, and, and I think in, in almost all cases, what I would do is, is split the ride evenly between the two days. And I, I don't know how the adaptation would differ um, between the two, if the quality could be good for a full eight hours, which it probably couldn't. But um, psychologically, I think almost everybody would agree that doing two four-hour rides is going to be easier than one eight-hour ride. Now, the exception to this is if I were training an athlete who was training for, let's say, a 12-hour event, and part of their preparation was not just the physical training, but also maybe like fueling strategies or mental training, you know, in, in those cases, then maybe I would ask them to do the one eight-hour ride instead of two four-hour rides. Or, you know, maybe they would do six and two. My thinking on this is, is pretty similar to Andrew's, um, splitting it four and four. Um, the only other way that I would usually do it is make the second day longer. Um, that way they could do one of their intensity days on Saturday. So if they have eight hours um, or less than that, usually uh, eight hours for a weekend is, is probably a lot if you're just talking about two days. But usually Saturday will be a little bit shorter, but a little bit more intense. And then Sunday will just be a low intensity endurance ride. And I found that like you can still be pretty fatigued, like pretty tapped and still do four or five hours of endurance because you're not like ever really having to push the pedals super hard. Um, so that's usually what I'll, you know, that way they get a, get in a good quality workout Saturday. Now for somebody who's got a lot of time in the week, what do you guys think about spreading the volume evenly throughout the whole week? So like, let's say they're doing three hours, five days a week. So that's 15 hours versus like maybe they ride one hour, three days a week during the week, and then they make up the other 10 hours on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. So same, I mean, I, same volume, but like the distribution of the of volume is completely different. I, I think, you know, sort of answering that in a, a little bit of an indirect way, I think it is important for all athletes, you know, all endurance athletes, even even people who are competing in super short distance events like criteriums or short track racing to get in some like long rides. And when I say long rides, I mean at least three or four hours. Um, I think that's important for the adaptation process because I think there are some things that happen towards the ends of those rides um, that, that really boost your, your endurance capacity. Um, and, and maybe that has to do with, you know, cycling through motor units and sort of being able to train your type two fibers to be a little bit more oxidative. Um, or maybe it's just, you know, trying to, uh, build up enough of an impulse, um, to, to, you know, push adaptation from like a single session. Um, mm -hmm. but I, you know, right, also generally I think it's, it's, it's important to, um, you know, have peaks and valleys even within a week. Mm -hmm. All right. We got to get back to the basics here. Um, consistency is key. I think in cycling, we get a little bit too caught up on like intensity and volume and, and we skip over consistency, you know, like 
there, that's a like in my mind that's a triangle consistency volume and intensity and we get so caught up on volume and intensity that we forget about consistency so i i don't like to see somebody who like won't touch their bike all week or or maybe they put in two or three hours total ride time from monday to friday but then they put in all these hours on the weekend um I, I lean more towards like, let's spread, spread the love and get it more consistent. And, but that's more so focused on like, if somebody's skipping rides during the week, um, I would much rather see somebody at least ride Tuesday and Thursday and then put in some hours on the weekend, but they definitely shouldn't go like five days without riding. Um, growing up, my coach had always told me, and this just kind of got pounded into me, I think, but he had said, if I take more than two days off the bike, that's when my fitness would really start to like decline rapidly. And I don't know if that's scientifically or, but that stuck with me. And so that's something that personally I try not to do is like take more than two days off just to keep it consistent. Yeah, there is, there actually is some science behind that. Um, around the two day mark is when your blood volume uh, starts to decrease of course, that's that's easily reversible by starting to ride again, but that's kind of like the first the first uh, physiological thing that happens in detraining. Um, but what I was going to say is that if if you're, um, I, I think the what you were saying about you know we get caught up in volume and intensity. Uh, you were saying consistency. I think a lot of people refer to it as frequency like mm. frequency with which you're training. Yeah. I I think that if you're if you're a fairly new rider or you're a fairly time crunched rider, you don't necessarily have to be a new rider, but let's just say you're a time crunched rider, so getting a ride in every single day is a challenge for you. Mm. That that actually should be probably the first thing that you focus on trying to improve is is increasing your frequency. Um I you know you probably want to get to the point where you're at least doing five rides a week. So you've got two rest days in there and preferably the rest days are not back to back. So like a Monday rest day and a Friday rest day, for example. Okay. But, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast and just because this person who I'm going to reference did, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal for all of us. Um, and he, he actually didn't cite, a scientific reason for doing it, but rather a practical one. But our, you know, study into um, what was his name, Adam Nils Vanderpool. Nils Vanderpool. Nils Vanderpool. So he followed a five-two periodization strategies, is what he called that. And so that meant he would do five days on, no rest, and then he would do two full days completely off, and. Obviously, he, he set world records and won Olympic gold, and so it worked really well for him. Um, but the reason why he said that he did that um, is because he wanted to feel like a normal person. So this guy was training, you know, 30 hours a week every week. And so he wanted to have his weekends, right? And so, so maybe that flies in the face of the science a little bit, but I do think it's, it's just an interesting, um, you know, look at, at what a top performer is doing in and that's not to say that, um, you know, um, all of our athletes should start doing that or we should start doing that. And I think he's definitely a unique case, but there is now some precedent for the old two rest days in a row. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going way back into the stacks here. But to answer Adam's original question, <laughs> which was like 30 minutes ago of what do you do? with an athlete if their base season is longer than three months? I think that was the original question. <laughs> Going back to that, because I've been thinking about this, um, I think it depends on – so Dylan had said it really depends on the situation. So if you're talking like typically for somebody, they're probably going to have two peaks in a year. Um, but if somebody says like all they want to peak for is cross nets and it's January – well, then I would get on a phone with that athlete and say, hey, we got we to gotta figure out something because you can't just train from January focused on December. There's got to be like some other A race squeezed in there because that's just too much time between, between now and then. Um, 
So I would say find a race to do this summer. Um, even if it's not that big of a race, just put it on your calendar. I think that I think doing that is is good on many different levels, but one of the basic levels is just having a goal on your calendar that's closer makes you a little bit more serious about the training. If my goal race is until December and it's March, I can slack off as much as I want in March. But if I've got a goal race in June, then I got to kind of, you know, get my ducks in a row because it's right around the corner. So it makes, you know, I think it makes the training a little bit more serious, but then it also allows you to fit two clean periodized blocks in the year. Yeah. So Drew, that's actually, uh, Dylan, go ahead before we transition into, uh, I I, I was going to say that also, um, it's probably not the best idea to put all your eggs in one basket, meaning, you know, train, uh, for one race on the calendar and that's it. I, I know that there, there's a lot of athletes that, that do that. Like maybe they got, they got an unbound entry and that's their one race that they're doing. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but it, it is, it could potentially be setting an athlete up for disappointment. If something happens to go wrong in that race, like for example, if you're training months and months and months for one race and then you taco your wheel, I mean, that is just, and and you've got no other races on the calendar to show to show for it. It, it is, I, I think, just just adding to your point, having having more than one race on the calendar to to peak for, even if it's not that important a race, I think is important. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great point. Uh, okay, so to kind of wrap us up here, we're going to talk about one last topic. Um, how do you guys know when an athlete is prepared enough from base training to start transitioning out of base season and preparing for race season? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of metrics that I really lean on when I'm considering whether an athlete is done with base. Um, the first is I'm looking for, um, the percent of aerobic decoupling um, for their long rides, whatever their long rides is. So if it's a three-hour ride or a four-hour ride, I want them to be able to do that that entire duration at around their, you know, let's say their LT1 or somewhere in their zone two um, with, you know, less than 8% aerobic decoupling. Um, and so what that means is for those who aren't familiar with the metric, it means that you. your your power and your heart rate are staying parallel for the whole duration. So we want to see those things, you know, come even closer together and, and stay parallel the entire ride. Uh, and that's that's a really good sign that um, you know our body has adapted to that that entire duration. Um, another metric that I kind of like to look at is um, I like to look for an increase in efficiency factor, which is a uh, the ratio of normalized power to heart rate for a ride and it it, the important thing here is that it really is only designed to apply to long endurance rides like long steady rides Um, and usually we can see a pretty good improvement there um, as an indication that the the base training that they had done had the effect that we we wanted it to have so those those are two metrics that you can sort of look at um, to actually quantify whether or not your your base season was successful with those two things, or could you call both of those cardiac drift? Is that another like phrase for that, or is that something totally different? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So cardiac drift is a uh, same thing as, as aerobic decoupling. Um, okay. in, in training peaks for for our training peak use users out there, it's called um, power per hour, or or mm. power, and then it's like a, a symbol, and then HR. So I think it's it's not power per hour. What am I saying? It's, power heart rate ratio <laughs> yeah i think it's the ratio gotcha. i've always called it power per hour i know that's not what it is but that's that's what it looks like to me um but another thing i think that's that i'll mention on that topic is one potentially conflating variable is that if your temperatures in your local area are starting to heat up as you get towards the end of your base season you might see cardiac drift by mm-hmm. virtue of the heat not by virtue of your your lack of 
um, aerobic fitness. So that's something to, that's, that's important to kind of like keep an eye on. Um, you know, if, if your base season extended from cold temperatures to really hot temperatures. Okay. So Andrew, I'm going to, uh, challenge you again here. So what do you do? Or let me rephrase this a different way. When do you absolutely have to transition out of base season to start preparing an athlete for race season? And let's just assume they haven't achieved that, uh, uh, level of aerobic decoupling that you know you're talking about there. So their their aerobic decoupling is more than eight percent. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think it it's gonna hinge on what sort of event they're training for. Um, you know, in the case where that hasn't happened yet, but they're doing a uh, a super super long duration event. So let's say I have an athlete who's training for unbound, right? There there might not be a way out of trying to make those improvements. So, you know, we very well might just kind of keep doing base in some form or another. I think at a certain point you, you have to keep the long rides and then sort of taper a bit. So lower the total volume, um, in order to sort of reveal the best form. But, you know, if it were a criterion racer, for instance, um, you know, I, I think maybe two months from your goal event, two and a half months to allow, couple of build phases um you know sufficient amount of c and b races in that period to kind of get the the practical skill-based improvements that you need um and to be able to to be relatively competitive at those events um i think requires that you you do lower the lower the overall volume yeah i like your question adam um i always think of periodized training like a video game uh, you start at the easiest level and you don't go to level two until you pass level one. So like if you get eaten by the green plant that comes out of the monster or whatever, you go back to level one. You don't just get to go to level two without doing level one. You have to do level one. Uh, but unlike a video game, time keeps going and our A race stays our A race. So if you just keep failing level one, uh, eventually you like you're going to end up at your a race having only been on level one the whole time. So, um, it's, that's just practical. I think, I think, uh, I should just say here, everybody should listen to their coaches and do their base one. Like don't skip your workouts. Cause that's when it's frustrating for a coach because then the coach has to like figure out how are we going to squeeze in an extra phase of training between now and their a race, like something has to give. So it's not going to be, as good as what it would have been if, you know, if things had stayed on track. So, uh, I think that's real practical and it's definitely a case by case situation, but, um, but yeah, that, that a race, if it's stuck there, you can't move it. So if you just got to figure out how to optimize what time you do have left between now and the race. Yeah, I like that. And I, I think that's, what's unique about, working with a coach versus a, uh, you know, predetermined training plan is you have that objective person to keep you accountable. And, you know, sometimes like for me, if, if I have an athlete that their priority race, you know, their, their a race, um, is less than two months away. And, you know, they, they trust me. If I know that we're not going to be peaked for that event, we've got another event later in the season that's, you know, also, you know, fairly high priority. I might just let that athlete know that, you know, we're not going to be peaked for your A race. Like, you know, some things came up, some variables came into the equation that we couldn't account for, uh, you know, when we were preparing and planning your season ahead of time. And that's okay. Like life comes up and that happens, but we have this other event, uh, that's two months later. That's plenty of time to peak for. So like, let's just reverse those priorities and just know, like, you can still have fun. You can still go to that race. You can still try and do your best. We're going to come into that event as best as we can. But you might not be on your your season peak for that event, but you do have an opportunity to peak for this se- event later in the season. So, like, is that okay? Like, are you okay with switching that priority? Whereas, like, a, you know, pre-made training plan, they're not going to speak to you in that way. You're going to stay super focused on that A event. And, and if you crash and burn at that A event, you're probably going to lose focus for that B event and, and your whole season might go to squash because of that. Yeah, that's a good, that was good, man. Let's go. 
All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch y'all soon. Let's go! Let's go!